This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today's sponsor is Kindred Bravely, a brand that came to life in 2015 by Deanne Akerson, a mom of two, when she couldn't find any comfortable and functional pajamas while nursing her second son. She decided to design her own, and this led to one of their best-selling pajama sets, the Davy Nursing and Maternity Pajamas. As moms, we have to stick together, which is where Kindred comes from. And bravely, being a mom can be tough. It's not for the faint of heart. It takes courage and bravery, right? Kindred Bravely is devoted to making life easier for pregnant and nursing moms. From breast pads and non-skid socks to nursing bras and pajamas, Deanne creates every piece with comfort, beauty, and function in mind. And her designs have been recognized by parent-tested, parent-approved, the Cribsy Awards and the Mom's Choice Awards. Behind the scenes, Kindred Bravely employs more than two dozen work-at-home moms who share Deanne's mission and values. Along with delivering top-of-the-line clothing, the KB moms provide incredible customer service, share quality content, and engage with social media communities. Use my exclusive promo code MOMSENSE20 to save 20% off your purchase at kindredbravely.com. Some exclusions may apply. Hi, this is Shannon Lee, and my experience on That's Total Mom Sense was engaging, thoughtful, thought-provoking, connected, beautiful. I really loved talking to Kanika. She's such a lovely soul, and I really enjoyed our connection, and I hope you do too. As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with That's Total Mom Sense. Martial arts is a metaphor for life. Have you ever thought about it that way? It requires a fine balance of the body, mind, and spirit, a keen understanding of people and their intentions, skill, flexibility, wisdom, focus, anticipation, practice. And after you're hit to the ground with this challenge or that level of adversity, you muster up the courage and willpower to stand up again. This is what living is all about. Today, I am joined by a woman who lives by this philosophy more than anyone I know. She is Shannon Emery Lee. She's famously known as Bruce Lee's daughter, but she is so much more than that. 
and is carving her path and place in this world in such an authentic way. Across the globe, billions revere her father, who made his mark as an incredibly talented martial artist, filmmaker, actor, and philosopher. But to her, he was simply dad. To say she had big shoes to fill is an understatement. And to think her father's shoes were never worn again when he passed away at the age of 32 and little Shannon was just four years old. Shannon has been a keen martial artist throughout her life in her own way. She's also an American singer, actress, producer, and entrepreneur. After her father's death, her mother, Linda Lee Caldwell, left Hong Kong and raised her in California along with her brother, Brandon Lee, who also died far too young during an accident while shooting for a film. People tried to tell her that acting was not good for the family, but Shannon decided to maintain the legacy of her father and learned martial arts from his students. She then made her debut into film and TV with movies like Enter the Eagles and Martial Law. She endeavors to persevere and promote her father's legacy as the president of the Bruce Lee Foundation and Bruce Lee Enterprises. She's the executive producer of the Emmy-nominated series Warrior on HBO Max. Her book, Be Water, My Friend, pays homage to her father's life and teachings. And her most important role is being a dedicated mother to her daughter, Ren. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you. So wonderful to be here with you. Thank you. So I do want to kind of ceremoniously open our interview. And so we can start with a bow. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, okay. So I want to just start with how we met because I do feel it's, it's significant. And I feel like I see you and your spirit on a whole other level. We met through our friend and intuitive Tony Leroy, and he somehow knew that we would click. And I just want to thank Tony because you are such a gift. Oh my gosh. Well, he is intuitive, so he would know. (laughs) (laughs) And I thank him too. I'm so grateful to know you and to be in connection with you. And he's just such a wonderful light. And he and I have been friends for, I don't know, 24 years, something like this at that point. So, you know, when he says, I think you would hit it off with this person, I'm immediately like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, he's so plugged in. He knows. Yeah. Um, and I want to just share, you know, my connection to your father, uh, because I feel like if you ask anyone, especially those who are 80s or 90s kids, we all have a Bruce Lee story, which is just so incredible that your father has touched so many lives. So my dad and I, you know, growing up, we didn't see eye to eye all the time. But I remember when I was 14 years old, we would watch countless Bruce Lee films together. And in fact, we would mark them in the TV guide that we got every Sunday. (laughs) So we would mark them with a felt tip pen that like we have to, you know, make sure to tune into this together. And of course, rent films from Blockbuster. And, you know, just one fine day, he signed both of us up for Kung Fu. And we went every Saturday to a school called Tianlin Worldwide. And we both were taking this adult class together. Um, And it was really transformative because here I was, this like adolescent with my dad, um, and we're taking a class and learning a new life skill from zero. And being able to hone the craft and practice together and spar with our punches and blocks and 
learn the tornado kicks. I mean, it was, these are memories I will never, ever forget. And it all came to be because of your father. That's amazing. That, that just warms my heart to hear that sort of thing. And, and that's what I really feel like Bruce Lee does at the end of the day is he brings people together, which is such a beautiful thing. Yes. Yes. For sharing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your legacy. I want to take it all the way back a few generations. So your grandfather was a Cantonese opera singer. Tell us about him and, and you know, his life in Hong Kong. Yeah, so he started his life in Canton province in China and then came to Hong Kong. And he became a Chinese opera performer, comedian. He also starred in films, Cantonese films here and there. And he started a family with my grandmother, Grace Ho, who was part European. She was not 100% Chinese. And they ultimately went on to raise five kids. But my father was the only one of the five kids who was born in the United States. Because my grandfather was on tour with the Chinese opera in the U.S. in 1940. When uh, with his and his wife had come, the, the other kids that had been born were at home. So she gave birth to my father in San Francisco, in the hospital in Chinatown, San Francisco. And ultimately, they did move back to Hong Kong. And my father grew up in Hong Kong, Japanese-occupied Hong Kong during World War II. And um, a lot of performers who were in the States did not go back, but my family did go back. His other kids were there, obviously, and then also that was his home. So it's where he wanted to be. So what was it like raising, you know, their son, Bruce? I I know in in your book, you mentioned he had a few nicknames. (laughs) I know. And I don't think I even mentioned that for several years when he was little, they called him also by a girl's name. Okay. So what are they? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know how to say it in Cantonese, but like Peacock, which is typically a, a more feminine name. And then Mo Si Ting, which is never sit still, was another nickname. <laughs> and yeah. Ultimately, when he was about five, I think he started working under the stage name Lei Xiu Long, which is Little Dragon. His given Chinese name is Lei Zhenfan. So that's his birth Chinese name. But he had many different names. He's most well known in Asia as Lei Xiulong, which is little dragon, or Shaolong in man in Mandarin. So. Ah, yes, and it, and it's so significant. Um, he was born. It was during the year of the dragon and a month. The hour, right? yeah, the hour, yeah, hour, wow. yeah, the hour of the dragon, the year of the dragon, and he was like all energy. <laughs> like he was a difficult child to raise because he was just active, moving. He was a prankster. He didn't like school. He was getting into mischief all the time. He was expelled from one school. He he was a child actor. He got into acting with my grandfather. I think his first appearance in a film is as an infant in his arms, actually. But then he went mm-hmm. on to play bit parts starting at the age of like four or five and went on to do more than 20 films in Hong Kong up to the age of 18. So a lot of people don't know he was an actor 
back then, but it was a very different life than uh, that of an actor in Hollywood. A little bit more, uh, not so well paid, a little bit more grueling. They filmed at night mostly because of all the city noise. So he was like trying to go to school during the day and then act at night. So, yeah. And then, of course, he, you know, at age 13, started his martial arts practice and, and training. Mm-hmm. Was it because he was such a fiery kid that his parents, you know, decided martial arts would do him so good, some good or? No, not exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> my father was getting into a lot of scrapes. He was bullied a lot. He was kind of a skinny kid and he was an actor. And so people would kind of pick on him a little bit. And, it, you know, there was a lot of sort of like, hooligans around bullies picking on one another uh, at that time. And so I think he really was interested in the martial arts. He was a very active guy. He liked the idea of learning how to defend himself. And he actually went to his parents and said, I want to study Gong Fu. And his parents said, no. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason they said no was because Back in those days in Hong Kong, a lot of the martial arts schools were feeders into different street gangs. And so it was sort of seen as it could lead down a not so good path. And his parents were like, you're already active enough. The last thing we need is for you to learn is to be punching and kicking people, you know? So Mm -hmm. it took some convincing, but he was, he was not to be deterred. He was going to take martial arts classes. He really wanted to learn. And he had met, a friend by the name of William Chung, who was studying Wing Chun Gong Fu with Yip Man. My grandfather actually knew Yip Man from their days in Canton province. So, you know, finally they gave in to him, which a lot of people tended to do because it would just wear you down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can only imagine my goodness. <laughs> and he went to go study with Yip Man. Yes. And Yip Man was his Sifu or teacher. What were some of the lessons that he gleaned from him? So he studied Wing Chun Gung Fu, which is a particular style of Chinese Gung Fu. And it's an art that was actually thought to be developed by a woman. So it was thought to be developed for someone who was a little bit more agile to be in close and to strike quickly and all of that sort of thing. So it was a, a good art, I think, for him, very much on the center line theory and all this kind of stuff. But really, the thing that was so wonderful was that Yip Man was a very seasoned teacher. He was already, you know, I want to say in his late 50s or early 60s when he started teaching my father. And so he he had a lot of wisdom and he would weave in a lot of Taoist sort of philosophical principles into it. And he was always sort of trying to get my father to be a little bit more gentle, add a little bit more yin to his yang, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he was, and he was forever trying to get him to sort of like get out of his head and to really like follow the path of his opponent and be more in tuned with his opponent and all these sorts of things. And as you can imagine, it's like a fiery teenager who's just like getting into fights all the time with kids and stuff. He was just like, how do I win? How do I win? How do I win? And so, so, you know, it was, it was good for him, but it it took some time for him to actually get the idea of what his teacher was trying to, to teach him. Yes. Yes. And then, you know, his kind of film career 
came shortly after that? How, how did that kind of manifest for him? He was acting as a kid in Hong Kong, but he was also fighting a lot. Yeah. He would engage in these sort of illegal rooftop matches where people from different martial arts schools would meet to test out their skills against one another. And a lot of times there were some nefarious characters hanging around as well. And so at one point, so he was engaging in a lot of these sorts of activities. And at some point it was getting a little bit out of hand. Someone got injured really badly And the police came to his parents and said, he's going to be in a lot of trouble if he doesn't get out of here and quit this. And so they said, all right, well, we're going to send him back to the United States. He's born there. He has citizenship there. He's not doing great in school. He's getting in all these scrapes with people and just leading down a bad path. So they put him on a a cruise liner with a hundred bucks in his pocket and the name of a Chinese opera friend to try and find when he got to the United States and off he went at the age of 18. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And when he left. Talk about free range parenting. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's great though. It's so refreshing. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of like you're, you're, you've got to figure this out. You know, yeah. and, we'll, and we'll give you a little resources. We'll put a little money in your pocket and we'll give you some names of people you can try and find and hook up with to help you when you get there. Right. But, you know, I mean, nowadays you think about it, it, first of all, it wasn't an airplane ride. It was like a, however many several day trek, like first they went to Japan and then they went to the Hawaiian islands and then they went to San Francisco. And he actually, my father was the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And so he actually had a lower class ticket, but on the cruise line, he would come up and he would teach cha-cha lessons to some of the upper class passengers. Wow. <laughs> That's so like just enterprising. Yeah. He was very enterprising. That's for sure. But you know, when he came to the United States, he really did not think that he would ever act again. He thought his acting career was over and he was really, I have to say, martial arts was what he loved acting was a job and he did it and he enjoyed it because it allowed him to be expressive and creative and all those sorts of things that he loved. But martial arts is what he really loved. Like he would geek out on martial arts. He had a Kung Fu scrapbook where he like cut out pictures of different masters and he was a beautiful illustrator and he drew weapons and, you know, forms and all sorts of things. And So when he came to the United States, he looked around and he could see that many of the Japanese arts, in particular because of World War II, like karate and judo and those types of things were very popular and had found popularity in the United States, Mm. but not Chinese Kung Fu. And so he was like, I will teach Chinese Kung Fu. That's what I will do. That's what I know. And so he just started giving demonstrations, meeting up with people, connecting with people, and ultimately got a bunch of students together who wanted him to teach and he started teaching. But it wasn't until several years later, well, 1964, I guess, when he he was exhibiting at the Long Beach International Karate Tournament that he was discovered by Howard. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You learned about your father through stories. Um, you know, I'm sure your mom gave you so many different stories, Brandon, his friends, his students. So what was that whole discovery process like? Because you do have this very 
just kind of visceral attachment to who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was all through what you were learning from others and your own kind of intuition about who he was without him in the physical being in your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I was, I, I was fortunate in that I had my sense of him. Then I had the stories from my mom, from other family members, from his students and friends who we kept in touch with and would see. And then a little bit later in life, I had his writings. Mm-hmm. And so then he could speak to me as well, even though he was not present, right? Because he did write so much, which was such a gift to me, especially later in my life. But as I came in more into adulthood, but I mean, of course, I loved hearing stories about him. I wanted to know as much about him as possible because he was my dad. And the sense of him that I have and will always have, and that is mine entirely, I really cherish. And it feel and I feel it feels very real to me. And then the stories just help to inform that sense that I already have and carry. And then the writings are an even further intimate level of that. But I think in in the way he expressed himself and the things he loved to think about. I have found a real kinship with him because I I love that too. I love reading his writings. I love thinking about those things too. I love trying to, I love learning, trying to grow, trying to learn from my experiences, all those sorts of things that he was really into. And so it's like I, I found myself in him, which mm-hmm. is as a child, what you want to find in your parents a little bit, right? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, your writing is so profound. Um, I love how, you know, you take his life lessons and his teachings and you allow us to adapt them into our day to day. And I mean, that's like a skill to be able to draw the parallels and find just appropriate analogies to make it just click for someone. Mm. Um, So yeah, you have the gift of being a very, very skilled writer. Oh, thank you. I've always loved writing. And this is my first book, as we know, I always had a dream of writing a book, but I never, I was always like, well, about what? (laughs) (laughs) And people would say, oh, you should just write about your life. I mean, what it's like being Bruce Lee's daughter. And I'm like, what's, that's not that interesting. (laughs) <laughs> it is, <laughs> and so I was really I was really glad to be in such close relationship with his philosophy and his practices and his words such that I could find a way to write about him and write about me and and my life and his life but also in a way that was presenting his material, presenting his impact as a philosopher, and hopefully delivering it in a way that was helpful to as many people as it could be at the same time. Yes, absolutely. So after Brandon's passing, I feel like, you know, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. I'm sure there was a moment where you felt guilty for still being here, or just like, Hitting rock bottom, you know, losing the two most important men in your life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how did you kind of overcome those times, the lowest of the lows? Well, I didn't for a long time. I would say it took me about seven years 
to work through the bulk of my grief because I didn't, I didn't know how to. I really didn't. And when my brother died, and it was so sudden and so tragic and so unexpected and so out of the blue, it just threw my whole life into chaos. Yeah. I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know how to grieve it. I wasn't raised in any particular cultural or religious tradition that would help to put a framework around it. And so I, I really felt lost. I was like, hold on. And I'm sure anyone who's suffered a loss has had the same feeling, which is how is the world still, how are people still functioning, going to work? How's the world still spinning? Like what? My whole concept of life has just been shattered to a certain degree. And I don't, I'm just supposed to keep going. I'm just supposed to keep pursue, you know, I had decided to pursue an acting career and I was getting ready to move back to LA to pursue an acting career side by side with my brother. And I was so excited about that. And then I was like, I mean, I'm just supposed to do that anyway. And I, and I did, but I mean, that it was not a particularly successful (laughs) acting career because mentally and emotionally and spiritually, I was just a mess. I was literally going through the motions of each day And on the inside, I was just in terrible pain. And as anyone knows, grief is physically painful. I really didn't know what to do. And quite frankly, I just, I think there were two things that really started to shape me and toward finding some sort of refuge, some sort of path to get on to heal myself And one was that I just had this repetitive mantra going in my head, which I didn't, it was not purposeful, but I just, I didn't know what else to do in my brain. I just kept thinking like, help me, help me, help me, help me. I can't live like this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I am living like this, but it's so painful and I don't want to live like this. So, I mean, I never literally thought about ending my life or any of that, but part of me was just like, this is not okay. Like, I'm so how do I make it okay? Because this is, this is not it. And so I really honestly believe that that cry from me to the universe, that internal cry from me to the universe and the universe responded and was like, okay, we're going to put some things in your path and you're going to find your way. And there were a handful of things that popped up in in my path. And the first one of which was my things. So my father was, uh, my mother was writing some books about my, was, was looking to publish some books on my father's writings. And so they had amassed photocopies that were like three phone books high uh, back when there were phone books of Mm -hmm. paper. And they said, Oh, we've photocopied all of his writings. We just, maybe you'd like a copy. Here you go. (laughs) They handed them to me. And I was like, holy cow, this is a lot of writings. And of course, I knew some of them. I knew the be water quote. I knew using no way is way having no limitations limitation and some of his more famous things. But I had never read all of his writings. And I just started leafing through them. And I came across this quote that I had never seen before. And as soon as I read it, I don't know, it's just like this light bulb went off in me. And the quote was, 
the medicine for my suffering I've had within me from the very beginning, but I did not take it. My ailment came from within myself, but I did not observe it until this moment. And now I see that in order to find the light, I must be like the candle and be my own fuel. And it was just sort of this like, I don't know, I feel like it was the word suffering that caught my attention, the medicine for my suffering. It was like that phrase. And I was like, there's medicine for my suffering. Yeah. <laughs> I am clearly suffering. What's the medicine? And the medicine was like, it's you. And you have the ability to heal yourself, but you have to be willing to look. You have to be willing to go on that journey, seek your cure, look at everything that's coming up. And that sort of started me on a path to seeking my own cure. Did you know there's an organizing app designed just for families named a must have mobile app on the Today Show? Cozy is an app to help families who are juggling school schedules, practices, meetings, doctor's appointments, and even helps them schedule a workout or a date night. Here's how it works. Cozy tracks everyone's schedules and events in one place with a shared color-coded calendar. Cozy even reminds others about events so you don't have to. No more missed pickups or double bookings. It's easy to get started. You can even pull in events from your family's personal work and school calendars. Cozy helps with other things on your plate too. The shared grocery list lets the whole family add items in real time, and you'll never find yourself at the store without the list. It's always on your phone and up to date. If you need help figuring out dinner, there's even a place to store recipes and plan meals ahead. The best part? It's free. Just download Cozy Family Organizer from the App Store, and that's spelled C-O-Z-I, and get the free app today. You all know I love being organized, using calendars to sync up and labels so you never drop the ball. Cozy up with Cozy to keep you and your family on track. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system. And know how tough it can be. But we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. I want to kind of skip ahead because, you know, you've had uh, your acting career, you've been in Hollywood, and more recently, an accolade is that you have this uh, series, Warrior, where you're an EP, you know, won this Emmy nomination. So tell us about this piece of work of yours. Uh, this has been quite the journey, this show, but I'm so proud of this show. I actually yesterday also just saw my producing partner, Justin Lin, and a few of the cast members from Warrior. 
Mm-hmm. And this show started out as an idea that my father created at this point now, 50 plus years ago, 52 years ago, wow. that he pitched to Warner Brothers to, as a starring vehicle for himself, which Warner Brothers did not choose to produce and then also further told him that he couldn't star in a TV show because he was Chinese and American audiences would not accept that. And of course, that same studio went on to make Kung Fu, the TV series starring David Carradine, who was a Caucasian man as playing a Chinese man. And so there's a lot of history here with this show. And I really didn't know when I started looking after my father's legacy, I came across his notes and the treatment that he had written and all that. And I thought, oh, this is here this is. I've heard about this my whole life. Here it is. But I was not in a position to like produce movies or TV shows. I've never done that. Mm-hmm. But over the course of time and sort of following my own path, I had run into Justin Lin a little bit uh, here and there. And one day he just called me up out of the blue and he said, I've always heard this story. I don't know if it's true or not of that your father created a TV show back in the 60s. Is that true? And I said, it is true. And he said, you mm-hmm. would have to know where that is. And I'm like, it's right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we got together. And I think the thing that makes the story so great is, is not just that we made the show, but that Justin was such a wonderful, Justin and his team were such a wonderful creative partners that they understood the quality and the core of what we were trying to do. And he said, we should only make this show if we can do it on our terms Mm -hmm. and I want you to be involved, I want you to be my partner. Um, Like my experience as a a person running the Bruce Lee legacy is that most business people and creative people come to me and they want me out of the way. They want to take Bruce Lee and do with it what they want and not have to deal with me. And, you know, it's partly why it's taken me so long to get anything done because I'm always looking for the person who actually wants to collaborate. And so Justin actually wanted to collaborate and he really meant what he said. And so that's in part why I'm so proud of this show because A, I think it's an amazing show. I know I'm totally biased, but I don't care. It's an amazing show. And I think it totally carries the energy of my father forward And the show itself has encountered ups and downs. The show was canceled after two seasons. Our network got swallowed up by um, through a merger and all this. But now we're back and we're working on season three. So it lives on. (laughs) Incredible. Incredible. I love that. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations to you and the entire team. Thank you. Thank you. And I have to say it was through the absolute heartfelt dedication of all of us involved, the cast, the crew, The producers, you know, everybody just was, they just knew the show was, was worth keeping going. And, Mm -hmm. and gratefully the folks at HBO Max agreed with us. Yes. Um, I want to kind of touch upon uh, an article that you wrote that again, I mean, it's just, it's really baffling how in this day and age in, you know, 2021, there is still just this entertainment industry run by white men who don't have a clue about how to portray and authentically portray, whether it's an Asian cast or any other race. And it's this article was uh, kind of directed towards Quentin Tarantino, who had 
just snubbed you on um, an interview that he had with Joe Rogan. And he, you know, has this film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he kind of negatively portrays your dad and didn't take ownership of that. I, I just love how you, you know, wrote in your own words, um, a very powerful rebuttal to that. So I want to just share a little bit of it now, and you can give us the context. Um, But you wrote, uh, and I quote, as you already know, the portrayal of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Mr. Tarantino, in my opinion, was inaccurate and unnecessary to say the least. Please let's not blame actor Mike Moe. He did what he could with what he was given. And while I'm grateful that Mr. Tarantino has so generously acknowledged to Joe Rogan that I may have my feelings about his portrayal of my father, I'm also grateful for the opportunity to express this. I'm really fucking tired of white men in Hollywood trying to tell me who Bruce Lee was. I mean, that's such a powerful (laughs) way to be like, yeah, I, and I'm so glad that you did it. And it just, why, why does that exist? Why, why, um, do these, you know, figures in and fixtures in Hollywood still feel the need to like, you know, gloss over the truth and and fabricate and come up with their own opinions? Like, why? Why aren't they going to really pay heed to someone who knows the full story? Well, people see Bruce Lee as a shiny object. Um, he's globally beloved. He's uh, super cool. Mm-hmm. He's an icon. He was an amazing martial artist. He was, um, his films were amazingly engaging and entertaining. And people want to possess that. They, they want to use it for attack. They want to attach themselves to it and they want to use it. And I understand that. I understand that desire, I guess I should say. But they want to be able to do that uh, with no accountability, with no concern for anyone involved, with full creative license to do whatever they see, see fit. And I have seen many people over the years take credit for my father's ideas, thoughts, legacy, The problem with when someone passes away is that you have full license to to say whatever you want, right? Oh, well, I was really the one who told Bruce Lee this, or I was really the one, you know, Bruce was my best friend. We, all this sort of stuff. So people say stuff like this all the time. And people also say negative things as it suits them to, to say it and to use it. But it, it's not necessarily coming from any place other than, well, what would be useful for me to use and say in this moment, that would be to my benefit. And I have seen people over the years say really horrible things about my father. And then 10 years later, say really wonderful things about him because suddenly it's in their best interest to say good things about him. Oh, I knew Bruce Lee. He was amazing. We were great friends. Whereas 10 years ago, they were like, oh, that guy was really not that big a deal. I could have beat him. I could have da da da. So it's like, okay. And people want to use him to make themselves look good. And I've seen that a lot too. I I really do think, I mean, my my piece in The Hollywood Reporter about that you just read a Mm -hmm. a, a, a section from was coming out at a time when, you know, the film had already come out, 
there had already been some exchanges in the press between he and I about the portrayal. And then it was silent for a while. And then he came out with a novelization of the film and was promoting it, which is why he was back on Joe Rogan. And he started talking smack some more on Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. And somebody, you know, reporters reached out to me and they said, oh, can we interview you? And I said, no, I don't want to be interviewed because in an interview, you'll take a soundbite from me and you'll take a soundbite from him. And like, we've done that already. You yeah. guys already know how I feel about it. And so I want to be, I want to express myself. I want to say what I would like to say. And I have to say, um, my friend Kamal Bell was really great in suggesting to me, he was like, you should write an op-ed. You should, you know, just say, just say what it is about this that bothers you the most. And so I wrote, you know, that one statement, which again, like the, some press who, who repurposed my article just took like the most salacious parts of it and reprinted it and made it sound like I hate white men and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, okay, whatever. Like actually Mm -hmm. the article maybe. Um, (laughs) But but to me, it just had to be said. And what I was really trying to say is people want to use my father, you know, for their own purposes. I'm I'm just sort of pointing out a pattern that I see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to say all white men are this way. I work with tons of white men in Hollywood that are wonderful. The showrunner of Warrior is Jonathan Chopper. He's amazing. He's also a black belt. He's all these things, right? So, So I wasn't trying to make any point other than that there is this pattern that is repeating itself, whereby when I hear this refrain of what an asshole Bruce Lee was and what, uh, how he was not really good at this or that he was only in it for greed or fame or this or that. And he was terrible to these people and terrible to that people that it almost a hundred percent of the time seems to come from white men. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and the biggest problem that there seems to be is that he wasn't and didn't show up as the model minority. Right. Right. And so he was an asshole. Hmm. Needless to say, you know, forget about the fact that, you know, what it took for him as a minority in the 60s to stand up for himself and do what he did. No thought about that whatsoever. You know, that he actually was very skilled, knowledgeable, you know, all these doesn't matter. What was your motherhood journey like? Because I'm sure that was (laughs) <laughs> so transformative for you and uh, an evolution for your essence. Totally. Being a mother has been the absolute gift and journey of my life. It's not to say that there aren't other gifts and other journeys that are just as valuable, but for me, it really helped to focus my life. It helped me to find that focus in my life because prior to that, you know, first of all, I was, you know, wading through a lot of grief, trying to just sort of feel good in my life and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. You know, I tried acting for a while. um, And then I was like, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll look after my father's legacy and all that. And I had started at that time on a spiritual journey of just trying to like, heal myself, feel better, meeting Tony, working with him, meeting other 
other people, guides, advisors, mentors who helped me to find myself reading books, you know, trying different things, all of these sorts of things. But having my daughter just suddenly like shifted my priorities in my life. I was like, oh, I'm responsible for a human being. Here I am trying to figure out how to be a human being. And now I'm responsible for another human being (laughs) 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 that I have to like keep alive and and hopefully have help them to do a better job than I have done. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's such a, it's such a great gift. Like I want nothing more than for my daughter to be better than me in terms of how she just feels in her body and her life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it just suddenly like snapped everything into focus for me. And it was like, yes, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm doing all these things, um, you know, taking all the opportunities as they come and trying to find my path as a business person and as a wife and all these things. But if my daughter is sick, if my daughter needs me, like that's who gets my attention. And she just held a little mirror right up to me <laughs> as kids do. <laughs> I was like... You know, oh, really? That's how you're going to act right now? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's eye opening. You're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I didn't know I'd be just faced with this. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, you're supposed to be the mature one in this relationship. So get mm-hmm. your together. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Tell us about a mom sense moment that you had. Well, I, I didn't read a bunch of the parenting books when I was um, when I had Ren, mm-hmm. and uh, in part because I felt like I, I I really needed to raise my child and not a child, and so I I just needed to really try to be in tune with who she actually was and what would actually work for her, and and I guess what I would say is. Um, Whenever I was worried that some phase, like she was never going to get out of a phase, like a thumb sucking phase, or a, I refuse to eat vegetables phase, or whatever <laughs> phase that was. Right. And I just thought like, oh my God, this child is going to suck their thumb until they're 35. You know, <laughs> that always, if I just attempted to have patience and be loving and guiding without forcing, because for my child, force didn't work. It just made her dig her heels in the ground, dig her heels in the ground. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That it always changed. Ultimately, she does not suck her thumb anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And she eats vegetables. But I think another one is just, um, and I've been very fortunate to have a lot of um, amazing people in my life and guides energy workers, people like Tony, all these different people that I've gone to for different things over the years. And I remember them saying to me, and I mentioned this earlier, um, Ren had some health challenges, some pretty serious health challenges. And that was where Tony said, you know, get it together. You're Shanley, God damn it. Mm-hmm. And I was, and another person said to me, cause we were trying all these different treatments, trying to get her well and all this sort of stuff. And there were some treatments that she just didn't or some doctors or some people that she just didn't like them. And I was saying, okay, but this person might help us. This person might help us. This person might help us. And I remember someone saying to me, you should listen to your daughter. She knows whether, whether these people are actually helping her or good for her or not. And I remember thinking like, letting a child direct this? What are you, <laughs> crazy? 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's been one of those things where I have, I've had to surrender so many times in raising her and surrender to what my agenda was mm. in favor for what she was telling me she needed and showing me she needed. Mm. And that was always the better choice and the better path. Mm. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? I mean, there are a number of quotes that I love. I'm kind of a quote hoarder. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but I'm also not um, good at like memorizing them. But I think right now what I'm trying to remind myself of, because there have been different points in my life, depending where I'm at, where I'm trying to remind myself of things. Like for, I mentioned this in my book, at one point I had little post-it notes all around my house that just said, B, B E period, which was like, be here right now where you are, stay present, don't be freaking out about the future or getting lost in the past and all the things you've done wrong in your life. Like be here now. And right now, I think what I'm trying to remind myself of and to live into is life at the level of energy and the oneness of all life. Like that I'm part of everything and everything is part of me and that I want to enter into life at the level of energy, putting out a certain type of energy, vibrating at a certain level of energy, rather than making decisions from a place of rationalizing them. And, and that in order to live at, in, at the level of energy, I have to be attuned to the oneness of all of life. Amazing. Amazing. And that really does um, allow you to inch closer to this self-actualized way to be. Yes. When you're attuned to that energy, the energy you give off and the energy you let in. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's now time for Mom Hall, when we share products we love. Okay, Mom Hall is, you know, just a fun segment on where we, I like to just kind of ask my guests, is there a gadget or a product that you are loving right now that you just want to share with your friends? So my mom haul is something that even though it is my thing that I'm promoting, something that I really, truly love. It is the Be Water membership program and you can find it on brucelee.com. On the main page, you just scroll down. It's our first membership program that we've offered through the Bruce Lee family companies. I really love it because you get daily philosophical quotes from my father. It's sent via text and just getting that little dose of wisdom or inspiration or something that's just thought provoking for me can really help to shift my day, shift my perspective, give me something to focus on. And I really love it for that reason. But also, if you sign up for it, you do get entered into monthly drawings where we give away some pretty awesome stuff. (laughs) Signed memorabilia, one-of-a-kind items, very limited and rare items, and sometimes just really fun gift boxes and grab bags. So that is another reason to do it. And it's really just a text program. You sign up and you get a text. And the fun thing for me is on my phone, I change the contacts so that when 
the text comes in, it says Baba, which is what I called my dad in Cantonese. And so it's like I get a message from my dad, <laughs> which I love. So that is my mom haul. I really think it's a beautiful thing and I really enjoy it. Um, and what are uh, you working on? I know you've done so much um, with the Bruce Lee Foundation um, and your campaigns uh, for Stop Asian Hate. How can we support you? Oh, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. So the Bruce Lee Foundation, which is brucelyfoundation.org, has a number of initiatives. We have a one family initiative where we are raising funds and support for different organizations that work to make the world a more unified and harmonious place. We have our Camp Bruce Lee program. I was just in Philadelphia at the Asian Arts Initiative where they were hosting our our summer camp for kids to put them in touch with some Bruce Lee practices and Bruce Lee tools and have fun at the same time. And that was super awesome. So we're looking to expand our camp. Fun. Um, Yeah, so fun. And, you know, I've got more projects, film, TV, book projects, all sorts of things that are that are in the works. And I guess, most importantly, in a couple of months, I'm going to be launching my very own website, separate from Bruce Lee. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We're so excited to be able to follow you and, you know, learn more about uh, your ongoing work in so many different facets um, and and industries, and and we want to um, kind of partake in it and you know be part of it. So that's really exciting. Thank you. It's so funny. Everybody's like, "Oh, your daughter's going off to college. You're getting older. So you know, what are your plans for the future? What are you thinking about retirement?" I'm like, "Retirement? Yeah. <laughs> I just got all my time back. What are you talking about? <laughs> Good for you. Yes." <laughs> Time to create. (laughs) Exactly. No, you're not. You're definitely not. (laughs) Um, Now, where can, you know, my listeners find you, um, you know, as far as social media and kind of following your work? Thank you. So I have an, my own Instagram is at the real Shannon Lee. It has a blue check mark. So you'll know you found the right one. Um, That's the only social media that I'm really on. Um, But I run all the Bruce Lee accounts. Those are all at Bruce Lee on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I will be launching my own website, which will be leewaymedia.com. That's in a couple months, though, so it's not out yet. But if you follow my social, you'll find out about it. And then we have brucelee.com, bruceleefoundation.org, which is, you know, our nonprofit. And yeah, all of, all of the places. Yes. And your book, your book. It is just a must-have, must-read. Yeah. Um, yeah. Water we're friend. I said, yeah, be water, my friend. Be water, my friend. Yeah. And and you can find it, you know, on Amazon, Audible, local bookstores. Yep. It's so, so great. And again, it's something you want to have with you because there's just so many just pearls of wisdom in there that you can turn to and use as uh, daily reminders. And it's ideal for all ages. So if you have a teen at home, have them read Be Water, my friend, and, you know, share what what your takeaways were together. It's really great. Yeah. Actually, a friend of mine from high school is in a senior English teacher at the Seattle Academy of Arts and Sciences. And he taught my book to his seniors um, as part of it. And, uh, and he was saying, it's a really great, especially for like, when it comes time to have to 
introspect a bit and write your college essays and all that kind of stuff. And he thought it was really great for that. And I'm working on some on Leeway Media. There'll be some exercises and meditations and things like that to that accompany the book as well. So great. We're so excited for you, Shannon. Thank you so much for being a light. And in my life, you know, I'm I'm so glad to have connected and I loved hearing your book and, and the words and your memories and hearing you speak now, sharing your story means the world to me. So thank oh, you. Thank you so much. Thank you for this point of connection, for the ability to share. I'm so pleased to know you and to spend more time with you over time. So thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to my interview with Shannon Lee. She is a true warrior and embodies all the characteristics of one, especially her patience, discipline, kindness, and humility. Shannon, I'm so blessed to have you as a friend and now my very own Sifu. And Tony Leroy, thank you, thank you for connecting us. It was just meant to be. Shannon and I are doing a book giveaway on Instagram, so follow us at The Real Shannon Lee and at Kanika Chada Gupta for details. I am so excited for you all to be introduced to her book, Be Water, My Friend, and for our lucky giveaway winner. Tune in to other episodes of the podcast on YouTube and on my website, that's totalmomsense.com. And of course, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Good Pods, everywhere. Write to me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com if you have a show topic you'd love for me to cover or want to send me a pitch. Remember, always trust your mom sense. Stay strong, super mamas. See you next time. That's total mom sense.